Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for all of these promises that are contained in the Scriptures. Lord, I ask that you would help all those who hear this message to better understand the promises, also to long for these promises and to trust that you will, in fact, keep your word. And Lord, I ask that it would encourage people to witness to their neighbors and to their loved ones and to even their enemies, Lord, that they may repent and be converted and therefore become partakers of this glorious kingdom. And so, Lord, we ask that you would accomplish that tonight. Help us understand these deep things. Help us understand even grammar well. Help us think well on these issues and really reason well from the Scripture so that we may know what you have said. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Remember last week, I talked about this programmatic verse in Revelation 11:15, And remember I said that it was a proleptic statement. And the reason why I keep coming back to this is because we're going to spend the last few sessions on the book of Revelation. What I'm trying to do is kind of build the categories around the book of Revelation because that's where we'll end up being. And remember I said that the book of Revelation is primarily about the kingdom of Christ. And I also said that the kingdom of Christ, the messianic kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, I use all those terms interchangeably. I mean nothing different by any of them. So tonight we're going to be focusing on the nature and duration of the millennial kingdom. And if you recall last time we saw the location and the participants of that kingdom. We studied that. So tonight we're going to be focusing on the nature of this kingdom and its duration. And so to that endeavor, I'll start in by talking about the different millennial views. And there's three of them. The first one is post-millennialism. Obviously, post meaning after. Here it talks about the, the definition that I have here is the kingdom of God is brought about through the teaching, preaching, evangelization, and missionary activities The world in this view is to be Christianized, resulting in a long period of peace and prosperity called the millennium. The church age, therefore, contains the millennium. And then, as you see the last part here, the second coming follows after this period. What's neat, no matter if you're amillennial, postmillennial, or premillennial, you end up in the same place. That is the eternal states. You believe that you're going to have a resurrected body and you're going to live in the New Jerusalem with your Lord. And that's why none of these views are in themselves heretical. But I would say that some of, one of these views is better than the other two. And that, of course, is premillennialism. Postmillennialism, I found it actually ironic that men like B.B. Warfield and Charles Hodge actually adopted that view. These were the great Princeton theologians. In fact, Charles Hodge's son, I think it's A.A. Dodge or Hodge, he actually adopted this view as well. I was talking to Bob about this before the class started, and he'd mentioned that this had kind of swept America in the 19th century. And one of the reasons why postmillennialism really fell into disfavor was because of World War I. After World War I, and then especially in World War II, who could argue that we're getting better and that, in fact, the world is being Christianized through our preaching? Well, nobody could do it. It was objectively absurd to make that claim. So post-millennialism, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I just wanted to give you some of those names. B.B. Warfield, uh, Finney you mentioned. Charles Finney was uh, post-millennial. And again, the idea is that we're going to be so successful through proclaiming the gospel that we will build the kingdom, and the kingdom just keeps progressing until the world is Christianized, and then Christ comes back at the second coming, and then we have the eternal states. And of course, 
But one of the problems with this view is think about passages like Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, where Jesus warns about, remember, the narrow path that leads to eternal life, and then there's the broad path that leads to eternal destruction, and the majority of the people are on the broad path, aren't they? So how can these people claim that as post-millennialists that, in fact, we're going to be so successful through our evangelizing efforts? It seems rather absurd. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on post-millennialism. I'm more concerned about the debate between premillennialism and amillennialism because I just don't find post-millennialism very persuasive. So here's the definition One of pre... One more we should see. Yeah. Sorry. No, that's um, good. There is a current version of it called Christian Reconstructionism. Mm, yeah. Okay, so... Just, just for your information, uh, Reconstruction teaching is post-millennial as well. Okay, good. Yeah, and these people are often very concerned about getting God's law into the culture. So therefore, because after all, you're going to have to build the kingdom yourself, right? So they would be much more uptight about getting local laws, federal laws, to represent the laws that we find in the scriptures. Why? Because we're building the kingdom. Okay, it does, we, don't, we don't wait till Christ comes and then the kingdom comes. We're going to do it ourselves. Here's premillennialism. It's the idea that the kingdom of God comes to Israel after the second coming of Christ. Jesus will reign from Israel for a literal thousand-year period in which the promises of God made to Israel in the Old Testament are literally fulfilled. Okay, and we'll be looking at more of those promises. Now, remember last week we saw that one of the major promises was that the Davidic throne would have the Messiah on it and he would reign from Israel and he would, in fact, bring all of the promises given to Israel recorded in the Old Testament. Now, amillennialism, this is the one that I want to interact with first. Amillennialism literally means no 1,000 years, hence the alpha primitive there. This is the view that there will be no literal millennial kingdom. This view maintains that the kingdom of God is now present through the word, spirit, and the church. And the proponents of this view await the second coming in the eternal state. So men like R.C. Sproul, Louis Burkhoff, Anthony Hoekma, they would hold to this view. And the idea would be that when Christ comes, again, the eternal states are entered into. It's very simple. There's no a thousand years. There's no multiple resurrections. There's just one. It's for the lost and the saved. And at that time, people are either going to enter into the eternal states or they're going to go into the eternal lake of fire. Okay, so it's very simple. Now I'm going to give you actually a quote from Louis Berkhoff, and this is regarding the dispensational understanding of Romans 11:25 through 29. That's the context here, and he's taking them to task. And listen to what he says about their understanding of this passage, which I would agree with their understanding of the passage. He says, quote, It is very doubtful, however, whether Scripture warrants the expectation that Israel will finally be reestablished as a nation and will as a nation turn to the Lord. Some Old Testament texts seem to predict this, but these should be read in light of the New Testament, unquote. That comes from page 699. Notice, I looked at the copyright, and it was actually written in 1938. If he had just waited 10 years, he could have actually seen his own theory being disproven, right? Israel becomes a nation, what is it, May 14th, 1948? And again, we have in the premillennial view a view that corresponds to history. So it's interesting to see that on millennialism, a lot of these people, had they just lived a little bit longer, they would have seen some refutation of their own view. Let me actually get into amillennial's case. Their case is actually founded on four different principles that I want to get into and the first one is this. This is their case. They assert that Satan has been bound during Jesus' earthly ministry. 
he's been bound primarily through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And because Christ has, in fact, put the stake in the heart of Satan, if you will, he is bound and therefore, in their eyes, can do no harm or deceive humanity. Okay, now, the problem with that is, is we see so much biblical data where, in fact, Satan can deceive the nations. And we would agree with our amillennialist friends that, yes, Christ at the cross did defeat Satan, but there's this idea of already not yet. Yes, he's been completely defeated. There's no accusation that can be brought against God's elect because our sins have been propitiated, they have been expiated, and we have the imputed righteousness of Christ. So there's no accusation that Satan can bring against God's elect. So therefore we have, like the passage in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay, But what do we do with passages, for instance, like in, um, is it 1 Peter 5, 8, that talks about Satan who prowls around seeking whom he may devour, right? In Acts 5, 3, we see that Satan had impressed upon Ananias to lie to the Holy Spirit. We see other passages that talk about it. So, friends, it just doesn't seem like a very likely case. And the other problem is, how do they understand Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3? I'm going to show you a problem that they have here. John writes, he says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until when? Until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Well, if in fact the amillennialists are right in that Christ has in fact completely kept Satan under chains because of his death, burial, and resurrection, then why would he ever be released? Okay, so certainly that can't be what's being referred to. And notice... He cannot deceive the nations anymore. Again, we've just given you some passages where clearly Satan is deceiving the nations. And let me give you a very clear one. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, uh, Satan is referred to the God of this world, and he has, in fact, blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they cannot perceive the light of the gospel. So clearly, friends, Satan is deceiving the nations. But the book of Revelation looks forward to a time where that will, in fact, be taken away, and he will no longer be able to do it. Okay, so again, the amillennial evidence just doesn't seem to line up with the scriptures. Let me give you their second claim. They claim that the coming to life, and the term is zao in the Greek, and I'll, I'll talk more about that in Revelation 20, verses 4 through 5, means that the saints came into, quote, a heavenly existence in the presence of Christ, unquote. And that's actually from Augustine. By the way, Augustine is the one who really originated the view of amillennialism, and to a certain degree, it came about in those days because I think probably because allegorizing became very popular due to people like Origen and, and uh, other scholars like that. But anyway, it always goes back to Augustine, this view. And, and notice the claim here coming to life. Again, what they're claiming is that it's really this heavenly existence in the presence of Christ. It's just a fancy way of saying people are spiritually born. Okay, So when we read the passage that says they were coming to life, what the amillennialist, the first time that's used, they believe that that means spiritual birth, okay? And then it, it goes on. It says they also see the first resurrection in 25 as referring to spiritual birth as well. So let me show you how they see this passage. Revelation 20, 4C through 5B, John writes, and they came to life, okay? Now that coming to life to the amillennialist would be spiritual, 
Okay? Now you continue. It says, And reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life. Now all of a sudden, this would have to be physical. Okay? Now, on what hermeneutic grounds do you make one spiritual and one physical? Well, anyway, they continue until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. And again, the first resurrection to the amillennialist must be spiritual. Okay, now, several problems with this. Number one, zao, nowhere else in the New Testament, means to come into the presence of Christ. It means typically to come to life physically. And in the context, sure enough, that would be the only rational conclusion I think one could, could, could come to. The other problem is anastasis. That's the definition, or I should say, the, uh, the noun for the first resurrection. It's actually used 41 of 42 times in the New Testament, and it's always referred to as a physical resurrection. The only possibility of it meaning a spiritual regeneration is found in Luke 2.34. But it's obvious within the context in Luke 2.34 that that's what's going on. It's talking about the spiritual regeneration of Israel so that they may be, in fact, those who are believing in the Messiah. But clearly here, friends... Um, being that we have the language of coming to life twice, the first resurrection should be seen as physical as well. The third claim that they make is that Scripture speaks elsewhere of only one resurrection. And I'll give you one example that they would cite. John chapter 5, verses 28 through 29. They say, The hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. The amillennialist will reason from this uh, passage and say, aha, there's only one resurrection because he's talking about a singular hour. Well, realize, friends, John uses hour often to denote long periods of time. And second, a premillennialist could argue, no, you actually see two resurrections here. You see the resurrection of life and the resurrection of the judgment. However, realize one of the problems with amillennialism is it reads into passages or asks questions of passages that these passages don't seek to answer. Okay, Jesus is not trying to give a dissertation on the quantity of resurrections, but rather the quality of them. There is going to be one to eternal life and one to judgment. The other problem is, is that we also see oftentimes, like for instance in Old Testament texts, first and second comings of Christ that are separated by thousands of years in the same passage. They're right next to each other. Okay, so certainly we have a precedent to see the same thing in passages like John 5, 28 through 29. When I was an airline pilot, if I sat you in the cockpit and you looked at my altimeter, my altimeter is designed to tell you one thing, how high you are above whatever barometric pressure setting you put in the barometric window. It does not tell you what time it is. So you can ask that question. It won't tell you that. And so what I'm saying is the amillennialists are simply asking the wrong question of this text. Jesus is not, his intent is not to give Again, a lengthy discussion on when the resurrections occur. But let me give you an example here of how we see, like for instance in Isaiah 61, where we see both the first coming and the second coming of the Lord talked about right next to each other. Now remember, this is the passage that Jesus cites when he's in the synagogue at Nazareth. And it says that he found where it was written. And I believe that more than likely, Torah reading and the prophets were read on a schedule in the synagogue. So it's not that Jesus took the the scroll out and kept looking for it. I think that that was the appointed passage of that day. 
And it just happened to be, it was on Isaiah 61, 1 through 2. And so Jesus quotes from this, and he says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, and he stops. And he puts the scroll down or away, and he says, Today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now notice what he left off. He left off the rest of the verse and the day of vengeance and and so on that talks about the actual second coming of Christ. The point being is here we have the first advent and second advent right next to each other in an Old Testament text and yet they're separated. We still don't know how far they're separated, but they're separated at least by thousands of years, are they not? Okay? So again, we would have precedent to say, yeah, more than likely, Jesus can be doing the same thing in John 5, 28 through 29. He's talking about two different resurrections when, in fact, they're separated by a thousand years. The fourth claim that amillennialism makes is that the promises in the Abrahamic covenant were conditional, and therefore, because Israel sinned, the promises went to the church. Now, to a certain degree, I would agree with this, but it has to be carefully nuanced, and here's why. It is true that if the Israelites sin and they fall into idolatry and they reject the ways of Yahweh, he will discipline them, okay? But it is not true that he will forsake the covenant promises that he he has made, okay? So what I'm going to show you now is in Genesis 15, I'm going to show you the unconditional nature of the promise that was in fact given to Abraham and therefore all of Israel from Yahweh, And if you remember, before I show you the passage, remember the context. In Genesis 15, Abraham is concerned because the only person that he has to pass on his posterity to and his promise to is Eliezer of Damascus. And he's not naturally born from his own body. And so he asks the Lord how he's going to receive this promise. And the Lord, remember, takes him outside. He tells him to look into the heavens and count the stars, and so shall his seed be. Well, then it says in Genesis 15:6 that he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Remember that? Well, then Abraham goes on to ask, how will I know that I will receive the promise? And that's where we pick it up here in Genesis 15:7. This is the Lord's response. He says, I am Yahweh who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. And he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Now let me stop there. Notice all of the animals that he has them bring actually comprise the bulk of the Levitical sacrificial system. Okay? So what's interesting about that is what came first? Well, Abraham's faith. And then he says, well, how do I know that I'll receive the promise? Well, what we're going to do is we're going to cut these animals. We're going to cut a covenant. And it's interesting to me, for generations, the Israelites end up cutting these same types of animals, but the promise was never locked into the cutting of the animals. The promise was always delivered by faith. We know from Hebrews 10.4 that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin, right? So remember, they were commanded to do that, but by the cutting of the animal, they couldn't claim that they had salvation or a right relationship with Yahweh, but rather it was a reminder. It was, you did this because one day Messiah was going to do this. Okay? It's, it's in that expectation. Now, what's interesting, in the ancient Near East, what they would do often, if you had two warring factions, they would karath bereath. You would cut a covenant. So, for instance, if my tribe was warring with Dick's tribe, 
we would cut these animals, we would lay them opposed to one another, and then we would walk the blood path. And what I would say to Dick is I would say, if my tribe goes against our word to keep our conditions of the covenant, may what happened to this animal happen to me in sevenfold. And then the other person would walk. It would be something to that effect. And then the other person would walk in the blood path and repeat it. What you're going to notice is that Abram ends up asleep. So who alone walks the blood path? Well, Yahweh does. And that's where we pick it up here. It says, Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven. Here we have a theophany, a physical manifestation of the Lord. It says, And a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day, Yahweh... Now you see where it says, Made a covenant? It literally is karath bereath. Again, it's literally Yahweh cut a covenant. So he cut this covenant with Abram saying, to your, remember, Zerah, to your seed, I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river. Friends, who walked the blood path? Was it Abram? No, he was asleep. He was sawing logs. It was, it was Yahweh. Yahweh alone, the, the, the master and ruler of the universe, said on that day, if I go against my word, Abram, may what happened to those filthy animals happen to me in sevenfold. The people in the ancient Near East would have understood that. Okay, that's not explicitly stated, but that's what's implied by him walking the blood path. And so, friends, these promises are all in an unconditional covenant that God has promised. And therefore, on what basis do we say, as the amillennialists do, that these promises will be void because... Israel has been unfaithful. And if Israel can lose their promises because they've been unfaithful, I'm in real trouble. Okay? I've been faithful, unfaithful probably daily and hourly. The Lord knows. Okay? So, friends, of course, that is um, rubbish. And ironically, the people who hold to amillennialism are those who typically believe in election. Okay? In other words, they should be the ones who want to be premillennial because it's consistent with their understanding of the character of God. Also, look at Romans 11:28 through 29. I don't think amillennialism can make sense of this passage. It says, uh, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. Well, notice, friends, the, they are your, our enemies. These must be the Israelites. Why? Because Paul is speaking to Gentile believers. Certainly Gentile believers wouldn't be your enemies. So he must be speaking, therefore, of the Israelites. And he says, but from the standpoint, they are enemies for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's choice... And here we have ekloge, and that's a noun that actually has to do with God's election of Israel. So it will not suffice or do for anyone to say that Israel is nowhere called God's elect in the New Testament. It says, from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are what? They're irrevocable. There's a scholar that I was looking at. I like how he puts this. Literally in the Greek, he could, he could structure it this way. According to, because there's a preposition, kata, according to the gospel, what are they? Enemies because of you. According to election, what are they? Beloved. Why? Because of the fathers. It's because of the promise made to the fathers. Okay? And so God will never go against his irrevocable promises. Why? Because his name is at stake. It's God's name is at stake. And that's why, friends, I think amillennialism falls way short. Now, with that, that still doesn't prove our position in premillennialism, but let me give you some evidence for it. I'm going to give you seven points. Number one, again, the verb came to life, zao. We can be very consistent. We can say it means just that. 
when you see come to life in verse 4 and come to life in verse 5, it means come to life. Okay? That's all it means. Very simple, very straightforward. Uh, number two, resurrection is physical in both first and second resurrections. Okay? Again, we're, we're consistent. The thousand years is taken straightforwardly. Revelation, it's mentioned in Revelation 20, verse 4, 5, 6, and 7. A thousand years means a thousand years. I remember I was in a Greek course at uh, Northwestern College, and our instructor, he wrote out in Greek a thousand years. And he kind of paused like he was going to say something deep. And he said, you know what this means, my friends? And we think, oh boy, what's, he, what's it going to mean in the Greek? You know, we're kind of sweating. And he says, it means that they'll reign for a thousand years. We're like, well, that's not very profound. He goes, well, that's what it means. <laughs> it's not. It's just very straightforward, okay? It, it just means that. There, and, and so it's very straightforward, our understanding of premillennialism. It's just that seems to be what the text is saying. Also, number four, the Old Testament promises of a kingdom entail Messiah reigning on David's throne from Israel. See the reference, the previous lecture. We talked about passage after passage after passage that promised that one day one like David would reign on that throne. Number five, the Old Testament is promises of a kingdom that far exceeds what we experience today, but will have, but still has death associated with it. Realize, friends, the eternal states that we see in Revelation chapter 21, there's no death. Okay? So right now, you and I can't claim that a youth lives to a hundred. But in the millennial kingdom, you'll see as I get to that passage, that is the claim that's made. So how do we account for that? There is death in the eternal states. There's really long life in the millennial kingdom, and we don't have that today. In other words, the evidence seems to argue for an epic that's short of the eternal states but far greater than what we're experiencing. And I'll show you that evidence. Number six, there will be no sea in the eternal states, but there will be during the millennial kingdom. And finally, seven, the millennium will have no war. And so now let me just show you the difference in these epics. I'm going to show you in graphic form here on a graph. These are three indicators to me that prove that there must be a millennial kingdom. Let's look at war, death, and the sea. Right now, we have all of these. We have war, we have death, and we have a sea. In the millennial kingdom, we have no war. There still is death, and there, there will still be a sea. Now, I put this in red because I want to make a little note about that. In the eternal states, again, Revelation 21 onward, the new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem, there will be no war, no death, or no sea. All right? Now, let me just make my note here. The millennial kingdom will have death, but lifespans will be very long. There will also be seas, but they will be restored. So even these yeses are qualified. Yes, there will be death, but people are going to live an incredibly long time. Okay, And yes, there will be seas, just like there are now, but they're going to be restored. In fact, the animal kingdom will be restored. Isaiah 11:6 talks about the wolf lying down with the lamb. And um, what is it, the leopard with the goat? And, and they're going to coexist with one another. There's not going to be the same death that we have today in the world today. And so there's going to be this time of restoration of even the physical world. So here I'm going to give you a passage out of Isaiah 2.4 that talks about this time where there will be no more war. It says, And he will judge between the nations, that is the Messiah, and will render decisions for the many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. So again, friends, realize that as far exceeds what we see in the present age because we have war and death. Well, here we see in the millennial kingdom, no war, but death still exists. In the eternal states, there's no war or death. Okay? Next, we see long life, but the fact that death still exists. Isaiah 65, 19 through 20, 
here it says, the Yahweh says, I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people, and there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his days. Now here's the kicker here. For the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought of a curse. Notice they're going to live a long time, but there's still death. And so we have to reason, well, it's, it can't be the eternal states because there's no death, but it can't be now either. And so it would seem to argue and beg for an intermediate stage, what we would call the millennium. Here's the eternal states. Notice what John says here in Revelation 21, 4. He says, And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. So you see this, again, this distinction between the two ages. Long life, but death still exists in the millennial kingdom. Here we have evidence from the sea. Notice in Zechariah 14, 8, this follows after the day of the Lord. And in, in some sense, it's contained within the broad day of the Lord. And it says, And in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, that is, the Dead Sea, and the other half towards the western sea, that's the Mediterranean. It will be in summer as well as in winter. Now, very interesting. Look at this passage in Ezekiel 47, 8. It says, These waters go out toward the eastern region. Now, again, that would be towards the Dead Sea. And they go down into Araba. Then they go toward the sea, being made to flow into the sea, and the waters of the sea become fresh. So here we have a promise that the Dead Sea will, in fact, be reinvigorated, and there will be life in it. Most scholars agree that that's what's being stated here. So certainly that far exceeds what we experience today, right? The Dead Sea certainly doesn't support life, but notice it's less than what we see in the eternal states. For instance, in Revelation 21.1, John says again, Then I saw... A new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And that's a very interesting quote coming from John. John is a Jewish man. The sea to the Jews is a formidable thing. It's a very scary thing. It is the place where Leviathan lives. It is the place where the beast comes out. It is the place where it's synonymous with perdition. And with chaos, they are extremely terrified of the, of the sea. For instance, Jesus, remember, he casts out the demons into the swine. And where does he send the swine? Into the Sea of Galilee. And what's the image there? He's sending them into perdition. The Jews are terrified of the sea. They hate the sea. Okay, The Philistines loved it. They hated it. Now, what's more, though, it's very personal, I think, too, in this setting, because where is John? Well, he's on the island of Patmos. And he's separated by all those whom he loves, all those who he cares about, and in, in some sense his physical life on this earth is over, and it's separated by this sea that he already hates anyway as a Jewish man. And so I think about how he must sit there on this island and say, there'll be no more sea. Okay? I just think about that. So think about all those things that are going on in his mind. But again, in the new heavens, the new earth, that will be done away with. Again, this argues that there must be a millennial kingdom. Now, this is what I want to end on. Why does this kingdom matter? I'll give you several reasons. The first two is, number one, I want to be a part of this kingdom, and I'm sure you do too. And this should motivate all of us to forsake the sins that so easily entangle us. This is a kingdom that we should be zealous for uh, entering. Okay, And in fact, it should make us zealous to, in fact, preach the gospel to those whom we love. Uh, those who, again, are our, even our enemies because we want to see them even part 
of this kingdom. This is going to be a glorious thing. Sometimes I am on my boat, I'll be out fishing, and you'll see the sun setting, and I'll see the stars, and, and it'll be, I remember last fall there was a day where the leaves were, it was just gorgeous, not a ripple on the water, and the stars, I felt like maybe I was Abraham, you know, I saw so many of them, and I thought, you know, the millennial kingdom is even going to be more glorious than this. And can you imagine? So friends, we want to be a part of this. We want to reign with our Lord Jesus Christ and we want to see our friends do as well. But I think there's something more, even more at stake here. And I think it's the name of our Lord. And let me explain. Look at all the promises our Lord makes regarding this kingdom. In Genesis 13, 15, he says to Abraham, this is Yahweh speaking to him, he says, for all the land which you see, I will give to you and your seed forever. Okay, how long? Well, it's forever. That's what that means. Second Samuel 7.13, He shall build a house for my name. This is to David, the Davidic kingdom, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. We're talking eventually about David's seed, the Messiah. Second Samuel 7.24, Here is the prayer of David in thankfulness back to Yahweh. He says, For you have established for yourself your people Israel as your own people for how long? Forever. Well, how does an amillennialist say that it's going to be less than forever? No, these people matter. Why? Because God's name is at stake. He has said that it is forever. Isaiah 60, 21, then all your people will be righteous. They will possess the land how long? Forever. And finally, Ezekiel 37, 28, a beautiful passage. Listen to what it says. It says, and the nations will know that I am Yahweh who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Friends, that is the reason for this kingdom, that the nations may know Yahweh. And in a real sense, that's why each each and every one of us gets up every morning. It's so that the nations may know Yahweh, that they may know Christ, right? That's our goal. Friends, we are the people that don't wake up to an alarm clock. We wake up to a calling. And our calling is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And that is the main reason why we should be zealous for the millennial kingdom. And in fact, that's why Bob has made it a point to say we do not want to debate fellow premillennialists. Why? Because this is something that we should be zealous for because God's name is at stake. This is far more important, friends, than the timing of the rapture. Whether you're post-trib, mid-trib, pre-trib, pre-wrath, whatever other position you can come up with, if you trust in Jesus Christ, you're going to be part of this glorious kingdom. And that should be exciting. It should unite us. And again, this is the kingdom that has God's name associated with it. And so therefore, we should be zealous for it. Okay, I'm going to just take a short break, just grab a little drink here, and then I'm going to get into 2 Thessalonians 2. And what I want you to do is, if you have a Bible, turn it to 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 1, and I'll have us read it here in a minute. Before we read it, I'm going to show you another claim by Alan Kirshner in an article that he has on his website entitled, It's the Antichrist, Stupid. <laughs> and um, I, I think Alan's just having fun here. Do you remember James Carville? He was, uh, maybe you are trying to repress that, some of you, but I shouldn't say any more. Anyway, James Carville once said, it's the economy, stupid, and I think he's just having fun with that. But on his website, he says this. He says, once again, recently, I had an ex-pre-tribber write me and share his encouraging epiphany of how the truth was under his nose all this time in Second Thessalonians 2. Paul makes it explicitly clear that the church will see the revelation of Antichrist this text is the most commonly cited when I read pre-wrath testimonies. Okay, then he goes on. He says, How someone reads the following passage and concludes that the rapture occurs before the revelation of Antichrist 
is a lesson in how tradition prevents many believers from seeing the truth. Now, I'll tell you what, when I initially read 2 Thessalonians 2, I thought, well, of course he's right. I have been stupid. I've missed it all along because a cursory reading would seem to indicate that. Okay? Now, let me show you what the issue is. I'm going to read to you. And by the way, after he cites these things, he quotes 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 5. Okay? So what I want to do now is turn your Bibles to, again, 2 Thessalonians 2, 1. I'm going to read actually the first four verses. And we're going to be covering verses 2, 1 through 8 together both tonight and the next time we get together because they're very important. But I want to show you what the issues are as Kirsten has laid them out. And, and why he believes that this passage proves a pre-wrath position or excludes at least the pre-trib one. Second Thessalonians 2.1, Paul writes, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Okay. Now, what I want to do is I want you to focus in, first of all, in verse 3. And notice that this day of the Lord, as it's talked about, will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness, that is the Antichrist, is revealed. Okay, So what Kirshner then continues to do is he says, well, when is he revealed? Now, Kirshner takes the idea of Antichrist revelation and he believes that is synonymous with Antichrist setting himself up in the temple in verse 4. Notice where it starts, who opposes. That's actually an adjectival participle. This is what's it's called apposition. Okay? And then he continues and says, and exalts himself above every so-called God's uh, an object of worship so that he takes a seat in the temple. That is precisely where Kirshner believes, or I should say this is the timing that Kirshner believes the Antichrist is being revealed. However, when you read this passage, this is not the timing of the revelation of Antichrist. This is merely further description of who then Antichrist is. This is what's called an appositional phrase. What is an appositional phrase? If I said, Bob DeWay, comma, pastor and lecturer from Twin City Fellowship, comma, is going to be speaking on the 9th of April. Well, in between the commas that he is the pastor and a lecturer from Twin City Fellowship, that is appositional. It's just giving further information of who Bob is. But it's not telling you when he's going to do anything. That's exactly what we see in verse 4. It's an appositional phrase. Where do we see the timing of when Antichrist is revealed? That is the man of lawlessness. Well, you don't see it actually till verse 7 and verse 8. Turn to 2 Thessalonians 2, 7 and 8. Verse 7, it says, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until, in the Greek, haos. I love that term, haos. That's a timing indicator. Until when? Well, until he is taken out of the way. Then there's a kai tati, and then that lawless one will be revealed. Well, that's when he's going to be revealed. It's in verse 7 and 8. It's not in verse 4. So verse 4 is merely a description of who he is, not when he's revealed. Are you with me? That's the issue. And that's why I was initially duped too because I thought, well, of course, 
now here's why is this important? Friends, if the Antichrist revelation occurs at the mid portion of Daniel's 70th week, then the pre trib rapture is untenable. Why? Well, because the day of the Lord would start after that. Are you with me? And so the day of the Lord wouldn't be starting at the beginning of the 70th week, and therefore the rapture would have to happen after the midpoint. Okay? So, but the problem is, is the, the text simply doesn't state what Kirshner claims it does. Okay, now, we're going to get into all these details more, but I, what I want to do is start in verse by verse through this passage because it's very important that we get this down. So let's start in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 2. And again, Paul, can, he continues, I'm just going to read it again here. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, 1, he says, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming, there's the term parousia, of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. Now let me stop there. These are both one event. I don't have time grammatically to explain why there's good evidence for that, but this coming, the parousia, and our being gathered together to him is synonymous with our gathering to the Lord in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. It is the rapture. That's what's being referred to there. Okay? Then it continues, he says, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now look at what the issue was. The problem that the Thessalonians had was that they believed that they were living in the day of the Lord. Let me put that up here. From a a pre-trib perspective, we believe that the day of the Lord will start at the beginning of the 70th week. So just bear with me. For the sake of argument, let's say we're right. What the people at Thessalonica were concerned about was that they thought they were living in this period of time. Why? Because they were undergoing such persecution. And so these false teachers are saying, it's so bad, you must be living in the day of the Lord. Okay? Well, what, what is therefore connected to that? Well, if you're living in the day of the Lord, you've missed the rapture. Okay, but realize the question isn't directly related to the rapture. It's only incidentally. The issue is they're living in the day of the Lord. That's what they think. And so Paul has to say, no, you can't be living in the day of the Lord. That's what he's going to be refuting. Okay, now the other thing to note here is notice this verb has come. This has come comes from anastaken. It's a me verb and it literally is a perfect tense. So it indicates that the day of the Lord had come in the past and it was still with them presently. In other words, it was present. So in other words, the way you could actually say this is to the effect that the day of the Lord is present. Because why? They believed that they were in it. They were suffering so bad. Okay? This is extremely important when we get to verse 3, and you'll see why. So again, they believed that the day of the Lord was present. Now, by the way, the translation here that the New American Standard has is just fine. That's a great way of translating a perfect tense verb. But for our understanding, that implies that the day of the Lord is present. That's what it means. Okay? Now, let's go to verse 3. 2 Thessalonians 2.3, Paul continues. It says, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Notice this portion that I have bolded in black and italics. That is, in fact, something that is implied. It's not original to the Greek text. In other words, we have to supply that in our English translations for it to read well and for it to be understandable. Are you with me? But notice that what's assumed, in other words, the it will not come, that's assumed to be the day of the Lord, not the rapture. Okay? And again, why do we know that? Well, because verse 2, it it left off with the day of the Lord is present. That was their fear. So that's how we know 
that the issue is they believe that they're in the day of the Lord. So that is what will not come. Now also notice, I want, to, want you to see again from this part that I have bolded in black is not original in the text. Let me just show you a Greek portion. You see this? This is It's called hati. And that would be the four here. Okay, it's usually a conjunction. Okay. Well then when you have this part that's bolded in black, notice that's not present. So do you see where I have it highlighted red? That's where the Greek text picks up. And it says, in may, which means if not, or a good translation would be as the NESB has, unless. Unless the apostasy comes or may come first. Okay, so what I'm trying to show you is that, again, this it will not come is not original to the text. Okay, it has to be supplied. And what's happening is, is we have to understand that the best way to render that is this way. Better than rendering it, it will not come. Notice that the phrase will not. That would imply future, would it not? But remember back in Second Thessalonians 2, they believed that the day of the Lord was present. And so a better way of rendering it would be it is not present. And by the way, does that make sense? Let me just finish my diagram here. That would be a better way of rendering it. Remember, it's not original to the text. We have to supply that. Okay, now why is it better, again, to, to say it is not present? Because the perfect tense, anestaken, from before, implied that the day of the Lord was present. So that's how we should supply it. Now, I, I, I'm going to have to muddy the waters a little bit more. How many in here have heard of a protasis, apotasis construction? Um, I know Bob has, obviously. Okay, let me just try to make this understandable. A protasis is an if portion of a sentence, and apotasis is a then. So a way of, um, let's make it real simple. If, protasis, my car isn't in my driveway, then, apotasis, I'm at eschatology class. Okay? We have an if-then statement actually in this verse. Okay? And, and the reason I'm showing you this is I don't want you to get confused about what the scholar says next. So what you have up here, friends, in this section where I have it, again, bolded in black, this is the apotasis. It is the then portion. Okay? And then here we have the protestants. It's actually inverted. It's backwards. Okay? So the idea is, unless the apostasy comes first, then the day of the Lord is not present. Okay? Well, what does that mean? Well, it means the apostasy is the first thing in the day of the Lord. That's what I'm trying to drive at. Listen to what the scholar Robert Thomas says. He says this, he says, Circumstances here justify a present tense in the apotasis. That's what we have here now, right here. Again, let me read it. Circumstances here justify a present tense in the apotasis, however, the carryover thought from anastaken. Remember in verse 2, other New Testament combinations of in proton, that is, if first, for instance, in Matthew 12, 29, Mark 3, 27, John 7, 51, and Romans 15, 24, reveal preference elsewhere for a present tense apotasis under similar circumstances. Okay? Now, that's really important. Why? Because, again, let's read it together. Or you don't have to sound off, but let me just read it again all in one time. This is how it should be rendered. Let no one in any way deceive you, for, again, it is not present. That is, the day of the Lord is not present unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Okay. Now, the reason why that's important is, again, my diagram here, what I want you to see is that this is the 70th week. The 70th week, I want you to think of starting right here, and the end of the 70th week is here. 
I also want you to think of the day of the Lord as starting right here. And because it cannot be present unless the apostasy comes first, that means the apostasy is the very first thing in the 70th week. That's why it's so important to get our apostasis down correctly. Are you with me? Okay, so remember the promise was that the apostasy had to come first and then the man of lawlessness, okay? And in fact, those two things would happen almost simultaneously. They would be back-to-back or very quickly. They, they go hand-in-hand. Hand. Some scholars think that they're simultaneous, okay? Now, let me show you something very interesting. Again, I believe that this happens at the beginning of the 70th week, and we see corroboration from Revelation chapter 6 because it, the first seal we see... Um, seems to point to the beginning of the 70th week where we see the Antichrist go out. It says, I looked and behold a white horse and he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. Okay, now realize he has a bow but he has no, he has no arrows in his quiver. So it's a peaceful conquest, if you will, immediately. Okay, well that fits very nicely with the beginning of the 70th week and therefore the day of the Lord and also the revelation of the man of lawlessness. Why? Because he's being revealed here. By the way, you see where it says he went out? This went out is ex erkamai. And that term in the Greek, according to theological dictionary of the New Testament, means the rise of sinister figures in Revelation 6, 2, and 4. In other words, this has to do with the revelation of sinister figures. Erkamai, which is... Uh, closely associated with ex also often has to do with the public revelation of people. Okay, why is that important? Because here then would be another tremendous indicator that the man of lawlessness is being revealed at the first seal at the beginning of the 70th week. Now, there's another powerful point. Uh, the fourth seal, again, when you follow into Revelation 6, verse 8, it has a quarter of the earth being killed by war, famine, uh, beasts, and plague, okay? Well, if a, let's just hypothetically say that that happens here within the tribulation, okay? Let's say it happens right here. Well, remember the pre-wrath view is that, um, in fact, it's after the sixth seal that you would have the day of the Lord, that it would start. Well, what's the problem with that? Well, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 through 3, it says the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them. Why would you say peace and safety after you've lost a quarter of the earth? Now, you can certainly say it at the beginning. Why? Well, because the man of lawlessness who's been revealed, he's going out peacefully in the very beginning. Okay? But after you lose a quarter of the earth, you certainly can't be saying peace and safety. Right? Now, again, to the pre-wrath position, let's just say hypothetically the rapture happens here. It would be after the sixth seal that you would have, in fact, the day of the Lord starting. Okay? Well, why would people be saying peace and safety then? All right? Now, come down with me to 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 through 3. Let me finish this passage. It says, Then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. Now, notice this uh, term here, labor pains. It's actually Odin in the Greek. And there's a very interesting tie between this and Matthew 24, 8. Now, remember, these labor pains are associated with the day of the Lord, right? What does Jesus say in Matthew 24, 8? And by the way, he's summarizing the very beginnings of the tribulation period. 
He's, that's what these things indicates. He says, but all these things are the beginning of what? Labor pains. Why is that significant? Because it's the same Greek term. It's Odin. In other words, from the very beginning of the tribulation, according to Jesus, that's Odin. And here we have Odin represented to the day of the Lord. Now, what that tells us is Matthew 24, 8, and that which precedes it has to do, obviously, with the day of the Lord, right? Now, let me show you another connection in Isaiah chapter 13, 6 through 8, and show you where this language comes from. And by the way, in Isaiah 13, 6 through 8, it has to do with the Septuagint. That is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. We find the same term Odin used again that we see labor pains, okay? And I'm going to show you where it is. Now, this is actually the Masoretic text. This is your English Bible, but I'm going to show you where Odin would be found in here if you're reading the Septuagint. This is what it says. It says, Wail for the day of the Lord is near. So we know the context is the day of the Lord. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp. They will be terrified. And here we would have Odin. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. Well, if Odin is here and has to do with labor pains and has to do with the day of the Lord, and up here, labor pains has to do with the day of the Lord, then would it not reason that that's exactly what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24, 8? Okay, that that's associated with the day of the Lord. Now, why is that so devastating in particular to the pre-wrath view? Because scholars like Habanah, Rosenthal, and Van Campen all have Matthew 24, 8 prior to the sixth seal by their own admission. Okay, so remember... The rapture in the pre-wrath view happens between the 6th and 7th seal, yet all of these scholars agree that Matthew 24, 8's timing is summarizing things that happened well before that. So Matthew 24, 8 must be prior to that period of time and more than likely is covering the very beginning of the tribulation period. And therefore, this is, in my opinion, another contradiction of the pre-wrath scheme and I think would give um, great credence that the beginning of the 70th week is in fact the beginning of the day of the Lord. Does that make sense? Okay, again, let me just summarize. The labor pains is associated, that's Odin, with the day of the Lord. Here we have the day of the Lord is associated with Odin. Again, it could be translated labor pains. And you see the same thing. Wouldn't it reason that they're all associated with the beginning of the day of the Lord? And Matthew 24, 8 must be associated with the beginning of the tribulation. Even the pre-wrath proponents agree with that. Okay? Now, one other item, and I'll, I'll stop at this point. I want to talk about the importance of the Thessalonians' fear. It's a very interesting point. I didn't come up with it. This is Robert Thomas. I'll show you. Let me read to you what he says. A very, very good scholar. I've been more and more impressed the more I've read from him. From the Expositor's Bible Commentary on page 318. By the way, if anybody has a chance to get this, it is a fabulous commentary. On He does both First and Second Thessalonians. He is just excellent. He says this, he says, Another problem is encountered if the parousia that initiates the day of the Lord is considered only the single event of Christ's return to earth following the tribulation. If Paul had given oral or written instruction to this effect, the false claim that the day of the Lord was already present could hardly have alarmed these Christians. According to this scheme, the day of the Lord could not begin without Christ's personal reappearance. His continued absence was obvious to all. Now, I hope that makes sense, but let me just show you pictorially what he's saying because I know there's you guys have listened to a lot so far. Remember, this is a rebuttal of the post-tribulation system. In the post-tribulation system, again, think of this as Daniel's 70th week. They believe the post-trib- that Jesus Christ 
comes for his church. He raptures them up. They meet him in the air, but he just continues right on down. Okay? And then he comes to Israel and he sets up the kingdom. So the rapture and the second coming are one event. And then you would have the day of the Lord ushered in. Well, the point being is, why would the people wonder if they were living during the day of the Lord? Because if they were in the day of the Lord according to the post-trib scheme, Jesus would be bodily on the earth and you'd be in the millennial kingdom. Okay, so all Paul would have had to say is, well, do you see Jesus with you? Nope. Well, you're not on the day of the Lord. <laughs> Very simple, right? Now, why would that not work with either... Now, by the way, this uh, either pre-wrath or pre-trib scheme, this would not affect. Why? Well, let me just do with the pre-trib side. For instance, let's say Jesus bodily descend, he raises his church, or you know, you know, they are caught up to meet him in the air, they're resurrected, and they go to be with him in heaven, as John 14, 3, 1 Thessalonians 4, 17 state. Well, then you could reason perhaps, because Jesus is not on earth, you could reason, well, we were just bad Christians. Then we missed it. And that's why we're suffering during the day of the Lord. That's why we're undergoing all this persecution. That's what those in Thessalonica were concerned with. Okay, but again, I think that this gives real trouble. If if Thomas is right, it gives real trouble to the post-trib view. Okay, and would therefore give more credence to any other view other than that. Obviously. Okay, I hope that all makes sense. Now, with that, let me just say where we're going to be going next week. I want to finish the rest of the verses in Second Thessalonians two, and then I want to talk about a lot of issues that relate to that: the apostasy, the restrainer, who it is. Possibly, I don't think we can ever know for sure. And when he is taken out of the way, we're going to get into some of those issues. And to be honest with you, I don't, that may take the entire period. I, I just don't know. So with that, that's where we're going to be going next week. I'll be quiet and I'll take your questions, comments, or show ideas.